Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Coastal gray wolves in Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska seem to be feasting well these days on an unlikely food source, sea otters. In fact, the shorelines of Glacier Bay offer wolves a cornucopia of otters and other marine menu items, providing this carnivorous predator safe and dependable locations for food and raising offspring. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick speaks with park wildlife biologist Tanya Lewis, whose research team is evaluating coastal wolf diets. Their goals are to identify different wolf packs in the shoreline areas important to them for feeding and reproduction. With annual visitation to Glacier Bay approaching 550,000, the team's work will be instrumental in determining whether those areas should be protected from unnecessary human disturbance. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, has given away over 2 million nickels since they started their nickel back program on their checking accounts. Learn how you can earn a nickel on your signature-based transactions at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. My guest today is wildlife biologist Tanya Lewis from Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in southeastern Alaska. Tanya has conducted research on all kinds of wildlife, including bears, seabirds, mountain goats, and moose. And today we're going to be talking about her most recent work involving Glacier Bay wolves and their changing diets and why that matters. She's joining me from her home in Gustavus, Alaska. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to The Traveler. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Let's start with wolves in general. Tell us what types of wolves are found in Alaska, and how about just in the Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve area? Do you find the same type of wolves there? So in Alaska, we just have one species, gray wolves, and um, they're separated a little bit out in, you know, ecologically between sort of interior wolves and coastal wolves. And what we have in Glacier Bay is pretty much entirely coastal wolves, meaning they spend at least part of their lives on the coast, on the shoreline. And that's because most of the interior of our park is still ice and glacier. 
So um, they're working, you know, the green edges around the outside of the park. We're on the northern end of Southeast Alaska, and Southeast Alaska has a, um, a subspecies of wolf known as the Alexander Archipelago wolf, and um, wolves in Glacier Bay are considered part of that group. And that group is currently uh, petitioned right now to be enlisted under the Endangered Species Act. So that's a, a little bit of the reason for the motivation for this work. But at the same time, you know, Glacier Bay National Park and Kulani National Park in Canada and Tachinchini Elsec National Park in Canada and all the way up to Wrangell St. Elias is a huge wild space where wolves are mostly protected. So it's a pretty good place to be a wolf, I think. <laughs> Well, I understand that the largest wolf populations are found in Canada, Russia, and Alaska. So I guess I was wondering any specific estimates of wolf populations in Alaska in general or the park area. I think, you know, I'm not sure what the latest um, wolf population estimate for Alaska is. Um, I'm going to guess it's in the tens of thousands. Um, that's something we could look up easily. Fishing game um, keeps, you know, and it's just an estimate. But within the park, we really have no idea. And um, one of the goals of our um, most recent research, which is really some of the first research on wolves in the park, is to kind of get an idea of pack range and how many packs might be uh, along the shoreline of, of Glacier Bay in particular, and then the park in general. And um, from that, we can kind of get an idea of how many wolves are in each pack, that sort of thing. And it gives us sort of a rough, rough estimate, but we're just starting that. So I don't have any numbers yet. So it sounds like there aren't any packs that are being tracked with radio or GPS collars currently? Well, there is one pack um, at the mouth of Glacier Bay. Um, which adjoins the town of Gustavus, which is where I live. It's a small town, about 500 people, and it's pretty much surrounded by national park and then water. So, you know, it's a bit of an island of a town surrounded by park, and uh, our collaborators with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, which is the state-run wildlife management agency, they try to keep um, one to two wolves collared in that pack. We call it the Gustavus Pack. But that pack goes into the park regularly, both to the north, to the east, and to the west. So um, they keep numbers, uh, keep tabs on that population, as well as a population across the water that I spoke of, which is south of Gustavus, an island called Pleasant Island, where wolves moved out about eight years ago. And they've been studying that pack on Pleasant Island as well. But those are the only two that we have um, radio collar data from. And one, you know, the Pleasant Island pack is not in the park. What's a typical hunting range for wolves? Well, so wolves have what's called a home range. They're territorial and home ranges in general do not overlap. They defend their, um, their boundary against the pack uh, that's on the other side. And so, um, but those boundaries change. Um, they're very fluid over time. And here's a really cool thing that I didn't know about wolves until I started studying them was that most wolves at some point in their life, usually when they're young, they disperse from their pack. So we have these, you know, unique packs with, with specified home ranges, yet wolves are coming in and out of them at all times. Now, some of those wolves don't survive. They don't, um, they don't get allowed into the pack and they get killed, but some do. And that's how wolves maintain their genetic diversity 
is they're constantly moving between packs. Usually, you know, one time when they're young, they move and then they find a new pack. And if they survive, then they're part of that pack. So pack ranges can vary pretty wildly. It really depends on the food resources. There's places like on Prince of Wales Island where there's a lot of deer and pack ranges are very small. Voyagers National Park has a lot of research on wolves and they have very small home ranges um, because they're eating deer as well. Up here, we really don't know uh, how big the ranges are, except for, like I said, the Pleasant Island and the Gustavus Pack. But, you know, in Glacier Bay, it could be, you know, square miles. And we just don't really have that honed in and, and probably won't really because we aren't capturing and collaring wolves in the park. Well, you mentioned protections outside of the national park boundaries. What currently are the federal or state protections offered for wolves in Alaska, if any? The wolves have a hunting season and a trapping season. And I don't know the exact dates on those, but they tend to go from the fall to the early spring, late winter. So they are protected from trapping and hunting during the breeding season. And other than that, um, some, it depends on, um, you know, Alaska is broken up into game management units and each game management unit will have different regulations for various species. Uh, Some do have a limit on the number of wolves that a person can take, whether from hunting or trapping, and some do not. There's a lot of um, competition with wolves in the state um, between subsistence and sport hunters and wolves. And there's areas where um, they're actually trying to depress the wolf population to encourage more moose and caribou. But in Southeast Alaska, that's not the case. And so there's trapping and hunting seasons. And then there's absolutely no hunting or trapping within Glacier Bay National Park up until we get to on the northwest side of the park is our preserve. And in, in the preserve, there is hunting and trapping as well. So tell me more about the Alexander Archipelago wolf and how all this ties into that species being put potentially on an endangered list. So the Alexander Archipelago wolves are um, in northern southeast Alaska to southeast, basically all of the southeast Alaska panhandle, which is also known as the Alexander Archipelago. And if they are indeed found to be threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act, then that will come with protections for habitat, as well as possibly um, protections that limit hunting and trapping. Because there is no hunting or trapping in the park, in Glacier Bay National Park, um, it won't affect the park as much, but many of us are, are gathering information now that either may help in the decision to list in the case of the state biologists or in in my case, um, if they are listed, then, you know, we'll need to, it'll be really helpful to know more about them and the important places uh, where we want to min- minimize disturbance from visitors such as denning sites and um, sites that are important to during the breeding season. So you are currently the principal researcher on a study of what wolves eat along the Glacier Bay shoreline, and you're evaluating what a changing diet can mean to wolf survival in an increasingly popular locale for human visitors. So what historically has been the typical diet of wolves in that area? 
So in the park, you know, we really haven't looked into it too much. There's been some interesting things over the years. Um, I've been doing a lot of bear research and a lot of bear diet research in Glacier Bay and looking at a lot of bear scats to figure out what they're eating. So naturally, when I find wolf scats, I poke around those two over the years. Uh, and what I recall is just a lot of moose hair, mostly ungulate, sometimes um, mountain goat hair, that sort of thing. We did have a humpback whale washed to shore in 2010 in the West Arm of Glacier Bay. And we put cameras up to look at the bear feeding activity and ended up picking up a lot of wolf activity as well. So that was really cool. And including a pack where we saw them all summer, but in August, we started to see their pups come to the whale carcass. So we know they eat a you know, diverse diet and utilize the, the shoreline and the intertidal zone as well. But until probably four or five years ago, when we really started picking up scats in Glacier Bay, wolf scats, and determining what was in them, we had no idea the amount of sea otters they were eating. And that's been shown, um, our collaborator, Gretchen Roffler with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. She has been looking at diet of wolves in the Gustavus pack and the Pleasant Island pack and found the same thing. And it's, we, we have just started really collecting these scats and looking at them. Um, I'm waiting to get the results from last summer, which I'm super excited about. We got almost 200 scats, but I don't have those yet. But our preliminary work before that really showed almost half the scats had sea otter in them, which is phenomenal. You know, sea otters were basically extinct from this area after sort of the fur trade happened and they were reintroduced, I think in the 60s, out about um, 40 miles west of here. And they have been working their way in and um, Glacier Bay might just have some of the densest populations of sea otters right now in Alaska. and the wolves are definitely capitalizing on that. And I'm not, I don't have any proof of this, but I think there's more wolves right now on the shoreline because they have um, a real solid, successful food source success in that they are actually able to catch them and eat them pretty regularly. There was another paper uh, in the uh, 90s that found it. One pack in particular was really focused on harbor seals. In, in the East Arm of Glacier Bay. And, and that was pretty cool. I haven't seen much of that, but I really think these, these animals are amazingly smart and flexible and creative. And, um, you know, they're finding these niches in mostly from, you know, from the ocean environment. And, uh, and that's what we're documenting now. What's allowing the sea otters to thrive so well? Well, there was about... Well, in Glacier Bay, so Glacier Bay was glaciated just 250 years ago. You know, the whole 60-mile fjord was covered in ice, so there was no Glacier Bay. And then um, then the sea otters weren't here, and as the bay formed, it, it formed just a really great intertidal and subtidal zone um, with amazing food for these critters, these sea otters. And as they've moved back, they've just had, you know, basically this cornucopia of food. And at this point, you know, they're they're definitely um, they've changed a lot in the um, intertidal and subtidal zones. You know, they've eaten probably most of the big crab, most of the big clams, their preferred food. 
and and now they're they're eating mussels and barnacles and and whatever they can find so it was just i think they were able to just erupt because the food was there so explain a little bit more about the previous work done um, between 2015 and 2021 about the diet of wolves on Pleasant Island near the mouth of Glacier Bay and surrounding areas. Tell us a little bit more about what that entailed and what the findings were. Yeah, that has been very, very interesting. Um, so um, I mentioned Gretchen Roffler, and she is the um, principal investigator on this study and working with our collaborator at Oregon State University, Tal Levy, who does the genetic work. Basically, the, the basic idea is that the um, we collect the scats and we send them to the lab, to Tal's lab, and they genetically identify the prey species in the scat. And they can also genetically identify the wolves themselves, like an individual identification. So that's been really cool. So what happened in um, about, you know, 2014-15 is some wolves from the Gustavus pack very likely dispersed to the island. It's not very far, it's about a mile across, dispersed to the island and started eating the deer. And I was, I used to hunt on Pleasant Island. Most people in Gustavus who hunt deer did. <laughs> and within a few years, there were no more deer. And everyone assumed the wolves would just swim back over and be done over there. But what Gretchen has found is that a pack, you know, the pack split off and, and there is this pack that never leaves the island and that they are surviving on mostly um, sea otters and fish and um, even invertebrates and birds. And basically, I think it's the first time it's been documented a wolf pack switching from an ungulate, a deer prey, to a marine prey. And so in the meantime, we started finding Glacier Bay, Gustavus, even up in Katmai, that they're eating sea otters all over. So there's some other collaborators we have up in Katmai National Park. They got so much data in Katmai in 2021 that their second year, instead, they went up to Lake Clark which is north of Katmai where there's not as many sea otters yet. And so they're just trying, we're trying to get like <laughs> the wolves, the coastal wolves that aren't eating sea otters. And then to see how that changes once the sea otters get up there, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a phenomena that's occurring across, you know, everywhere it's been studied so far where there's sea otters and wolves, it seems like they are really, um, really cashing in on them. So wolves, sound like they're excellent swimmers if they were able to swim out to Pleasant Island and they're happy there because they are finding otter, um, no deer left, but plenty of otter to eat. Yep, they are very good swimmers. We don't have any evidence that they're actually swimming after otters and catching them that way. I think that would be very unlikely, although in certain locations they might be able to do it. But otters haul out on the rocks like like seals, like sea lions. And we believe that, you know, they're getting, they're, they're hunting them when they're hauled out as well as just scavenging dead sea otters on the shoreline. This is Lynn Riddick and I'll be back with wildlife biologist, Tanya Lewis after this short break.
listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. I'm back now with Tanya Lewis, a research biologist at Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. Tanya, let's move on to your recent research that's happening and how it expands on the Pleasant Island wolf diet work. Um, Would you explain the parameters of your work? Sure. Uh, So Gretchen Roffler with Alaska Department of Fish and Game started this work about five years ago, and and I... um, have been very interested and have helped with field work and really was hoping to expand it to Glacier Bay. And so is she. And so we just started opportunistically collecting scats like a couple of years ago in Glacier Bay, a few years ago now, and um, finally got some funding this last year to really kick it up a step. And like I said, we collected 200 scats that were waiting for results. But in addition to seeing what wolves are eating, Across Glacier Bay, I'm also interested in what they're eating between packs, because I think that that individual pack diet is pretty interesting and says will say a lot about what the other resources in and is in various areas of Glacier Bay. As I mentioned, Glacier Bay was completely covered in glaciers 250 years ago, so we have what's called this landscape succession as you go north in the bay, where the south end is forested. And the north end is bare rock and glaciers. So as you go north in the bay, it's there's very different um, 
animal communities, terrestrial animal communities, and even in the ocean as well. You know, sea otters have been working their way north for the last probably 10 years. And um, now we see them hauled out on icebergs right by the glacier bases. And that's relatively new in the last five years. So so it's a constantly changing environment. And um, what I imagine is some packs have better access to mountain goats and some have better access to moose. And some live in more of uh, sort of the forested areas where there's more rocks and, and protected inlets where the sea otters haul out. So I'm expecting to see some variation. However, it seems like they're eating sea otters everywhere. So I'm not, not sure um, if we will find that type of interpack variation. And then, like I said, the other thing is to to figure out where the packs are spending their summers uh, when they have pups and uh, their denning sites, their home sites, and seeing if we can learn more from them that way too. So a wolf versus a sea otter, is that a close contest? Do you think that <laughs> it's easy for a wolf to catch a sea otter or are they basically scavenging ones that are hurt or have been preyed on by some other animal, I guess? Yeah, it's a good question. I They undoubtedly get ones that are hurt, ones that are old, ones that are already dead because we do find sea otters wash up occasionally. But I think it's a would be a pretty fair match between a sea otter and a wolf. Well, I think sea otters could definitely, if they're anywhere close to the water and can get in the water, they're going to get away. You know, sea otters are in the mustelid family. You know, weasels, the same family as um, wolverines. You know, which are very well known for being very scrappy, and river otters are super scrappy. So I don't have any. I haven't. I witnessed it myself. But I imagine they must be able to sneak up on them and then pounce them and um, and hold on to them, I guess, long enough to, <laughs> uh, you know, wolves are definitely susceptible to getting injured from big game like moose and elk. So I think that the cost, the benefit of getting a sea otter won't be as high as, say, a moose, but the cost is much less. You know, they might get a scratch or a bite as opposed to a broken leg, you know, that could happen from a moose. So I think it's it's better bet to try with the otter at least. So I think you mentioned you hadn't seen any wolves go after otters. Have you seen a lot of wolves in your work? Yeah, we've been seeing them. Uh, well, I mean, it it is, they are very reclusive as far as, you know, study animals. I see them less than probably most other animals. But uh, now that we're going to areas where we expect them to look for scat, we put up cameras. I have run into them more often in the last, this last year when we really, you know, kicked up our research. I had a really cool experience last May. My husband and I took our sailboat into Geeky Inlet is on the west side of Glacier Bay to ski. And um, we're sitting on the boat and a, a pack of seven wolves ran around the inlets and we got to watch them and really identify a couple. And I saw that one, one was pregnant. And uh, about a month later, some filmers showed me some film of uh, a few wolves feeding on a sea otter carcass about 20 miles north of where we had seen them. And it was the same wolves I recognized that female, and she was really pregnant then. She was about to have her pups, and they were feeding on a fresh sea otter carcass. 
And then later in the summer, in August, I went to that location to pick up scats and ended up seeing her and two two pups and you know really really um, special opportunity to observe these animals. You know, without putting any hands on them, without. I mean, I know I've disturbed them a couple times, but um, yeah, it's a great way to learn about these animals. But not as many human wolf encounters as you might imagine, just because. They're just so reclusive. So you mentioned the 200 scat samples. Um, when do you expect to have the results back where you can kind of move on to the next phase of the study? Any day. We should get those any day. But our study, we're going to just do the same thing this year. 200 might seem like a lot, but it's, you know, that's from hundreds of miles of shoreline. So um, in order to really look at that you know, variation between packs or variation across time, seasonality, inter, you know, year, year to year variation. Um, We're going to continue basically what we did last year and get more scats. And when we do find areas that um, home sites for wolves and pups, we'll put up cameras and um, try to get an idea of how big packs are that way as well. So hundreds of miles of shoreline, does that include the results from the 2015 study as well? Or is this all fresh information? <laughs> nope, that's, uh, this is, yeah, hundreds of miles of new shoreline. Uh, if you look at a map of Glacier Bay, you know, it's got two main fjords and all sorts of bays and inlets and coves. So um, I don't know offhand how many hundreds of miles of shoreline it is, but it's, it's definitely in the hundreds. And then there's the whole uh, icy straight outer coast portion of the park. Uh, we're hoping to get that out there a little bit more this summer as well. And even looking forward into the future of, of actually, um, you know, we'd have to charter a boat to get out to the outer coast of both Glacier Bay and Wrangell St. Elias. And it'd be really interesting to see what wolves are eating out there. I would imagine on the outer coast, meaning there's no islands or inlets you know it's just like crashing surf onto the sand probably be a lot harder for them to get sea otters I don't really know if sea otters come through the surf and haul out on the sand but definitely not as frequently as they do on the rocks and protected waters so yeah so we'll just keep doing this as long as we can uh or at least a few years I should say until we have a really good geographic spread and hopefully have an idea of of which scats came from which packs and then can look at it holistically. Well, how many folks are contributing to the study? And I guess I'm curious about how you can cover that much territory. You know, you mentioned boats and so forth, but still that's a lot of area. How do you approach like where you want to go based on maybe where you've seen wolves before, or how do you know where to, you know, what areas to pick to collect samples? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we kind of have to walk a fine line between having an idea that wolves will be there to find scats versus um, going to, you know, we could walk 20 miles of shoreline and not find a single scat if there's no wolves there, right? So we do a combination of of going to areas where we've seen them before. And then once we get enough samples from those areas, like 20, 30, we'll go to different areas as well as going to new areas opportunistically to see if there's a pack using that area. 
but if we don't get scats, you know, after a few miles, then, you know, we won't go back there for a while. So we do our work. There's, I have um, two people working with me in the summers and um, that's about it. Uh, But we also are doing other work, including um, nesting seabird surveys. We put up soundscape equipment at four different locations uh, around Glacier Bay and we do some wilderness monitoring. So what we try to do is go out in and do as many of those at the same time as we can. For example, we can go down the beach, walk down the beach, look for scats and collect um, encounters data for wilderness monitoring. And we like to use kayaks when we can, because it's really easy to, you know, stop, stop, pull your boat up, survey a section of beach, that sort of thing. Uh, But we do also utilize the parks research boat for getting dropped off and picked up and also for taking us to beaches that are are farther away or if we don't have time to kayak all the way into some place. So it's a combination of motor and kayak and just lots of walking on the beach, (laughs) which is wonderful. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you probably have seen some parts of the park that haven't been visited very often or at all. Uh, Yeah, definitely. You know, most of this work is focused on the shoreline because that's where we would have the the most conflict between visitors and wolves. But, uh, you know, it would be pretty interesting to also walk inland more and look for scats there, see if they're eating different things inland versus on the coast. But that would definitely be a lot of looking for a needle in a haystack, you know, just hiking through the thick alder looking for scats uh, would be difficult. Uh, We did another study on mountain goats, and it was uh, based on collecting mountain goat pellets or or scat. And that was when we we climbed mountains, but mountain goats are a lot more obvious to see and you know where they are and can go, you know, go to where they were and find their their pellets. But wolves, it's a lot harder to just find them. Well, your findings and how they will be used, do you foresee that certain areas of the park that are popular with visitors might be closed off? Should they be determined by your data to be key feeding or pupping areas for wolves? It's possible. That's one management action that we could take. We could also, um, in you know, educate visitors. And if they see, you know, wolves with pups to uh, not camp there, the the seasonal closures, you know, we do have quite a few in, in Glacier Bay to protect wildlife. And definitely if we found a, a denning site that was in, in um, danger of being, um, because wolves, when they're denning, they will, if they're discovered, they will actually move. It was interesting. There was one home site last year. So not the denning site, but after the pups come out, they tend to stay in a general area and the parents go, all the adults go and feed and come back and the pups sort of stay in this one general area. And we had a site like that, that was actually kayakers were telling us about all these, you know, cool wolf encounters and the wolves didn't leave. So it really depends on the location and how the wolves react um, if we saw a disturbance of an area or or find some dens that are are susceptible to disturbance by people, then we would consider closures uh, seasonal, you know, very temporary closures. Because once the once the wolves come out of the den, which you know is probably by June or July, then 
then they're a lot more resilient to disturbance. I see. So what other uses or expectations uh, for your findings? Well, you know, though we talked about the management portion just now, and um, that's great. There's also an outreach component, and um, we're trying to get more and more information. Um, we have a web page right now about this project that has links to some videos that we caught uh, wolves on videos last year, including wolves howling and pups. So just sharing with the public the information about wolves that we really haven't had until now. Like I said, we haven't done any wolf research and, and um, you know, really didn't know much about them. So as this, as this project continues, that will be a big part of it too. And um, then as a, in a bigger picture, looking at all these areas where wolves are basically surviving because of these marine nutrients, um, you know, documenting this uh, interaction between the terrestrial and the marine ecosystems is really interesting. And I think it's kind of shown that what we have thought about wolves is not necessarily true, that they depend on deer or moose or elk. And what we're seeing is they're a lot more versatile and can survive on much smaller species. And I think that in itself is, is a contribution more to science in the big picture um, and how that will change as the marine ecosystem changes, you know, with warmer water, climate change, ocean acidification is something that terrifies most of us because that could cause a collapse in both salmon and invertebrates, um, shelled, shelled organisms um, that both that bears definitely depend on in a lot of places as well as wolves and and uh, so just really understanding those connections and how they change based on, based on you know, the resources that are avail available in different locations, I think will help us be better able to respond as things go awry with climate change. How long have you been working for the Park Service in Glacier Bay? I started, let's see, 1999. And I was a, a technician, um, bio, biological technician. And yeah, just kind of worked my way up. Um, I started working with bears in 2001 and doing research. And then um, 2006, I was hired to write the bear management plan for the park. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree um, in 2012. And at that point was hired as not as not just a bear biologist, but overall terrestrial wildlife biologist. And yeah, it's led to a lot of cool projects. And um, I, yeah, I feel very fortunate. Well, any job where you can paddle along in a kayak in Glacier Bay sounds like a pretty nice job. Well, this is a little off topic. Um, but when we were setting up this interview, I noted uh, your interesting email signature. So would you please explain that for us? I live and work in Huna Clinket homeland. Huna Kau Ani Awe Yai Yati Kaax Yai Ihane. I mentioned that you know Glacier Bay was covered in ice 250 years ago, but before that, it was a broad, open outwash plain, and with glaciers up at the top. And the Huna Clinket 
uh, lived here since time immemorial, the mountains, the waters, the glaciers. And when the glacier came down, it drove them out of Glacier Bay. It came all the way down the valley, covered the valley, and jut out into uh, Icy Strait. And so they moved, well, a lot of them moved about 18 miles south and um, tucked behind a mountain in a town called Huna. And so, um, you know, this is their homelands. And we uh, we have a really, we're lucky enough to have a, a pretty great presence of, of Clinket culture and culture bearers in the park right now. Uh, we have a, a tribal house and a lot of great interactions and programs. And we're trying to work more towards co-management uh, and definitely getting getting youth involved, um, getting Huna Clinket youth involved in some of the research we're doing. And, and uh, so that is, you know, that's kind of where we're at right now, but I always like to acknowledge and remind Remind myself and others about the ancestors here and um, that long, long timeline of events and stories and and basically culture that occurred before uh, before we got here. So those are all the questions I had about your research. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I would add that I think wolves are one of the most interesting creatures in the world right now. And, you know, wolves need a lot, a lot of wild land. And humans in general are not super tolerant of wolves. So I think all the information, any information we can get out about wolves is is very valuable in conservation. And I would tell people who are interested in wolves, because wolves do have a lot of fans, myself included, that Glacier Bay is a great place to see them on the shoreline. Um, it doesn't happen every day, but it is, you know, an, an area where wolves can be seen as well as Denali and other national parks in Alaska. And uh, so I just really encourage people to, um, if you're interested in wolves, find out what you can do for wolf conservation, maybe in your area. And if you want to see them, come on up to Alaska. Tanya, thank you so much for your time today. and. We'll keep an eye out on your work and we'll be curious to learn about your scat samples and more about the changing diet of wolves. Great. Thank you so much for the time and interest. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to sit down with the editors who compiled Campfire Stories, Volume 2, a collection of tales from America's national parks and trails. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. 
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.